2 Corinthians chapter 6. You can remain seated because I want to read several verses and I know some of you have already worked a long day and you've worshipped. So we reverence the Word of God seated tonight. How's that? King James Version. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So months ago we talked about this passage. A yoke is a relationship that is binding, contractual, like a marriage or a business partnership, a close friendship where this person is more than someone you work with, maybe someone that you are lied to, you're, you're tied to them, like those two farm animals that were hooked together by a wooden yoke. And Paul pulls many Old Testament scriptures in this short passage to tell believers, Christian people, that we are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then he uses really synonymous phrases. He kind of drives this point home. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols. For you are the temple of the living God. You'll see that those phrases are repetitive. They have slightly different angles of meaning, but essentially saying the same thing over and over. For you are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And this verse 17 is where we've started as a text for the last three weeks. Wherefore, because of what you just heard, all of these scriptures, all of this understanding about separating ourselves from the world, worldly practices, idols, uh, binding relationships with ungodly people, Now certainly we are sent to the world to love the world as Jesus loved the world and bring people to a saving relationship with Him. But Paul says, verse 17, Wherefore, because of that, come out from among them. Don't stay with them. Come out from among them. And be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Just want to remind you in verse 17, there's some things that in and of themselves are ungodly, unholy. They are inherently wrong. And so we don't do those things because the practice, the behavior itself, to participate in that would be a wrong thing to do, a sinful thing against God's nature, against the nature of the Holy Spirit in us. But then he also says, come out from among them. Some things are made unholy by the crowd, by the group, by the people. It may not be the exact behavior, but the association with them. And he's already told us for about five verses about not being unequally yoked together. So now he says, come out from among them. Be separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing." And I will receive you and be a father unto you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now verse 1 of chapter 7. Having therefore these promises, not these threats, not these, you know, not this condemning message, but the promise that God would love us and be our father, We would be his sons and daughters because of these promises. Then he says, Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. And I know the Holy Ghost makes you holy. We are declared righteous by God. And now Paul says that there's some work for us to do, that we cleanse ourselves. Paul in Colossians talks about putting off some things and putting on some things, off ungodliness and on godliness, and he talks about mortifying the deeds of the flesh, some things that we have to kill in us if we're going to be like Jesus Christ. That 
is a process and it's a lifelong process. It's not something that you're going to do overnight. And holiness, which is the nature of God, invested in us by the Holy Spirit, holiness is perfected when we cleanse ourselves of the flesh. And the word flesh there doesn't mean carnal nature. It means your body, your flesh, and your spirit in the fear of God. So this is to be done with a reverent attitude, recognizing that God is observing our lives and we're walking before Him and endeavoring to please the Lord. Now, as I approach this message tonight, uh, you know, praying this week and all along the way in this series, I really felt like all the way back since May 24th, and if you have not been here for the last three weeks, please go back and listen. And if you've never heard of five lessons on holiness, remember this is only one that I'm spending a month on, and I really don't think I'll finish tonight. Um, there's more than external holiness. It goes all the way back uh, to five lessons. But I've, I've learned this, uh, this is kind of in my heart tonight, that in our culture, everything is debatable. I don't mean it should be debatable, but people debate everything in our culture. They debate the existence of God. Is there really a God? They debate whether or not the Bible is the Word of God and is it infallible. Are, are parts of the Bible applicable in 2017? Or is the entire Bible, this Holy Bible, uh, that is the inspired Word of God, we call it the canon, C-A-N-O-N of Scripture, this canon, is this the infallible Word of God in its original writings? Well, I believe it is. But that's debatable to some people in our world. And then there are people who will call themselves Christians who debated. In fact, they've, they've kind of ended the, debate, ended the debate in their denominations about gender distinction. And they, they've concluded in their religious circle that homosexuality is not a sin and that same-sex marriage would be sanctioned by God. They've already ended that debate, but obviously we do not, and if you haven't been here for a while, you may not know where we stand on that. So just to be clear, we believe that it's very plain in the Scripture that that's a behavior that is perversion, it's against the nature of God, and the Bible condemns it in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's against the nature of the way we were created. And someone told me after one of my messages a few weeks ago, if you want to know how this plays out, take three islands, put all ladies on one island who are lesbians and all men who are homosexuals on one island and put all heterosexuals on another island and let that play out over several years and see which society uh, continues. Two of those islands will become unpopulated because they cannot reproduce. But the one that is designed after God's plan, one man, one woman for life, they're able to procreate and society can be perpetuated and obey what God said all the way back in Genesis that we are to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And that is only possible if we follow God's plan uh, for one man, one woman, one life, right? Amen. So I think we all get that. So then there are people who debate, you know, does God care how we look or dress or what we do? Uh, because it's debatable, and or really, again, many churches have hindered the debate that it doesn't matter. And they've kind of landed on one scripture and misunderstood and misapplied, you know, that God told Samuel that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. You know, the brothers of David have passed by, and God is rejecting them from being king, but he picks David even though David's the youngest, he's not limited to the outward appearance. God sees both. But we would be ripping large passages out of our Bible to say that God doesn't care about how we look or act. Now, I want you to just kind of think about this. In our culture, I was reading this today and thinking about this. Very recently, I was in a place of business. And I happened to hear some conversations, two conversations 
where people that one lady had a t-shirt that had a scripture on it. The other person I've met before doesn't really know me. And I heard both of them lie. I heard both of them tell a lie. And I only know it was a lie because everything they said in that place of business revealed that they had told somebody else a lie. Well, if you kind of follow what people, surveys and Pew Research and Barna Research, it's just been proven that people who call themselves Christians lie with about the same frequency as people who do not. If that's true here, I'm an utter failure and you're a sinner. (laughs) Right? Because all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. It is a matter if you call yourself a Christian or not. You say, I'm a Christian, but you lie, you sin. And you need to repent of your lying and change your evil ways or you're not going to go to heaven. And if you read about pornography, there seems to be about the same percentage of people who call themselves Christians who view pornography as those who are not Christians. I would say that's an indictment against what we call Christianity. And if that's true here, we're all failures as people who love Jesus Christ. Say we love Jesus Christ. I'm only pointing that out to say. that We are called to come out from among this worldly system, no matter what people call themselves, and be separate, saith the Lord. We are a contrast culture. We are not to be like pagan, ungodly people, even if they happen to refer to themselves as Christians. God cares about how we live. And I think it's good to search the Scripture and ask questions as long as we are hungry for God. Holiness is a perfect virtue. It is not a perfect system because our culture is a moving target and changing. We're seeking to please God in a culture that is really radically changed even in the last 40 years or so. I believe it's important that the things I teach from this platform or wherever it would be in a personal conversation or whoever, wherever I am should matter for eternity. I've talked about that and that we should be people who are trying to be like Jesus Christ in everything we do. There's one other thing that I want to say. It's kind of been on my mind. Because in our culture, there are a lot of people who are their own Lord. And the Bible, the Bible talks about people. The Bible uses the word fool. It's 360 times in the Bible. A fool is not necessarily somebody who is stupid, who is ignorant. Uh, a fool is someone who is basically stubborn, who will not listen. And the Bible says, and I'm going to give you several verses, many from Proverbs, that the Bible said that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He ignores or she ignores all the evidence that there is a God. And they say, there's no God. So they become their own God. The Bible said that they are corrupt. Now, many places where the word fool is used in the Bible, ungodly behavior, corrupt behavior is also linked to that. And you'll find that in the Bible. Said in his heart, there's no God. Proverbs 10 and 8 says that the wise in heart will receive commands but a pratting fool will fall. A fool won't listen to what anybody else says. Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. I'm saying this for a reason, obviously, and not because of a conversation I've had with anyone or somebody that's come to me and said that somebody in the church is giving, resisting this teaching. Everything I've heard has actually been very positive. But I just want to tell you about the nature of our world. That it's a foolish thing when no one can tell you anything. When you're your own judge, your own jury, your own Lord, and there is no one over you, be it Bible, God, pastor, parent, husband, you're just going it your own way. Proverbs 12, 15, he's right in his own eyes. Proverbs 14, 16 said, A wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. 
Proverbs 17, 10, rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. Talk to a wise person, they'll get it. Beat the daylights out of a fool, and they'll walk away not getting it. That's what the Bible says. Proverbs 18, 2, a fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. They're not there listening and receiving and processing and asking and searching. They don't want to hear what anybody else has to say. They just want to tell you what their opinion is about it. And that's why they're a fool. Someone said he who has himself for a teacher has a fool for a teacher. And I believe that too. Proverbs 23, 9. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. Proverbs 26, 8 says that like one who binds a stone in a sling is he who gives honor to a fool. Now that's a funny word picture to me. The old-fashioned slings that they use in the Bible. You've got a rock that you're going to throw and you tie it to the sling and you whirl it around and you try to let it go and it comes back and hits you. That's what happens when you honor a fool. Jesus said, a foolish person is someone who hears my words but will not obey them. Paul said, fools like Janus and Jambres who withstood Moses are people who are reprobate, they resist the truth, they will not proceed any further, and their foolishness or folly will be manifest into all men. So, I just want to say, don't be a fool. Jesus also said, don't call people fools. Right? Reka, shallow brain. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I want to go back and I'm going to summarize last week by giving you just a few succinct points. And if this is too fast for you, then you need to go back and listen to last week over or go back if you were not here because I went and spent most of the time last Wednesday on this subject. But I just want to review seven reasons a woman should have long, uncut hair from 1 Corinthians 11. So I'm going to name the verses, but I'm not going to go back and reteach it because you, that's what I did last week. So if you think I just glazed over it, that's because you were not here. First of all, uncut hair is a sign of a woman's submission to authority, verses 5 and 10. Angels are examples of the consequences of rebellion and the blessing of submission. Verse 10, all of these verses are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It is a shame for a woman to pray or prophesy with her head uncovered. Hair is her covering, and if she cuts her hair, it is the same as she is completely shaven, according to verses 5, 6, and 13. Nature teaches her to have long hair as opposed to shorn or shaven hair, verses 13 through 15. Long hair is her glory, verse 15. A woman is a type of the church and her uncut hair is a sign of the church's submission to Jesus Christ and her submission to her husband or father, verses 3, 5, 10, 13, 16. And hair is one of God's methods of maintaining gender distinction, the distinction between male and female, verses 7, 14, and 15. A few practical comments to ladies. First of all, the Bible teaches that women are not to cut their hair. It grows at different rates, so leave it uncut. Scissors, knives, razors, radical permits, chewing, whatever. You know, don't look for a loophole and be a legalist around the Word of God. And don't use any kind of an excuse to undo what the Bible is very plain about. And I don't make an application of Scripture when I teach 1 Corinthians 11. It is black and white in the Bible. It's very plain, very clear. There's really no questioning to me about what 1 Corinthians 11 teaches. For example, if I was teaching against cigarette smoking, I would say it's harmful to your health. Surgeon General has taught us that. And the Bible says that our body is a temple of the Holy Ghost and we shouldn't defile it. And we shouldn't be hypocritical in the way we defile it either. But I apply that verse to a lot of behaviors. Particularly, I'm using the example of smoking. 
because we have evidence that it's harmful to your health and your body's a temple of the Holy Ghost. But I'm applying that scripture principle to an application. But with hair, it's just there in the Bible. It tells us what to do and not do. Now, in a practical way, and the ladies at our church are so good at this, but I've been around the Pentecostal faith all my life, so I want to just give you a few practical pointers. Don't turn your glory into a tangled mess. Fix your hair. Make it look nice. Don't resent what God gave you. Dress nicely. Don't be sloppy. Don't run around in public in curlers, please. If you see me, I will not know you. (laughs) In other words, this is something that is very distinctive. A lot of ladies have long hair and maybe not uncut, but they have long hair. But I think it's a disgrace to God's people when we are not our very best. And I'm not talking about you're working in your yard or whatever, but... When we present ourselves in public, we should, we should do the best we can with what we have, right? So, I mean, I should speak for myself, right? But Now, six reasons a man should have short hair according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, not according to Daryl Johns. Short hair on a man is a symbol of authority, verses 3, 4, and 7. A man who prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, his authority, which is Jesus Christ. And we know that long hair is the biblical covering and that long hair, well, I'll get to that in a minute, verses 3 and 4. Nature teaches a man to have short hair, verse 14. Long hair is a shame on a man, verse 14. Man is a type of Christ. Man's short hair signifies Christ's authority over him. I'm talking about man in the home, the symbol of authority in a home. And then hair is one of God's Methods of maintaining a distinction between male and female, verses 14 and 15. Now, practical comments to men. The principle is very clear. Your hair is to be short. In our church, we teach our men to have your hair short, not over your collar, down over your ears, and down in your eyes. We like to see your beady eyes. No, your beautiful eyes. And you know, it's amazing styles change. And I've learned this. I mean, been in ministry 39 years, right? So style can sometimes influence people more than the pulpit or the Bible or pastor or father. And um, now so much. I mean, here again, it comes and goes with men. Um, I remember hearing a story years ago. This was back, you know, when like lots and lots of guys. And I went to high school in the 70s when long hair on men was really popular. And I read this story that was kind of funny, you know, this Teenage boy wanted the keys to the car, and the dad said, I'll give you the keys to the car if you'll go get your hair cut. And he said, well, Dad, Jesus had long hair, and his dad said, that's right, and he walked everywhere he went, too. So, <clears throat> uh, you know, that, but those kinds of stories come and go, and challenges come and go. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, and in our church, this is not... In Old Testament law, this is from nature, and it's in the New Testament. So Paul goes all the way back to Genesis, the way God made us, and he brings us all the way into the New Testament. And I think it's important, just in a practical way, as a pastor, that our our hair styles are not mimicking countercultural movements in our culture, that we identify ourselves with people who are conspicuously ungodly in the styles that we have, and that applies really to everything in our life. Amen? Or you, you know, just I didn't mean to ask amen because I just want you to be able to process this. Now, in the same way that later when we talk about colorful cosmetics in the Bible, I may not get there tonight, uh, from the Bible, I, I believe that we should respect the natural process of growing up and growing older. And the Bible teaches that the silver-haired Head is a crown of glory if it's found in the way of righteousness. And that we should rise up in the presence of the gray-headed person. And that the glory of young men is their strength and the glory of old men is their gray hair. So we believe that we accept the color hair God gave us and the color hair it becomes as we age. 
and that we're not rejecting ourselves and that we learn to age gracefully. Amen? Not rejecting our generation and who we are. Amen. Now some ladies have trouble with growing their hair. My mom is 85 years old and she doesn't have a lot of hair. And For years she's worn a hair piece. Um, you know, if you do that, try to wear it where it doesn't look cut so you don't have your good be evil spoken of. Amen. Everybody's still happy and love Jesus. Amen. I want to talk about modesty. Modesty, the next principle that I want to address tonight. Now, modesty is a very big deal. And in our culture, it's under attack lots of ways. If you study the etymology of our English word modesty, it talks about being sober and gentle and temperate. And it goes back to the idea of not lewd or improper. So modest versus immodest. On the screens, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Words of Paul, and I've talked about this verse before. I desire, or would it men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And I'll just remind you that these verses are adjacent to one another. And Paul writes to men about some things that men struggle with. Men struggle with expressive worship, lifting their hands in worship, and they struggle with wrath, anger, and they struggle with doubt. Paul is pretty clear about that. He doesn't say in verse 1, or excuse me, verse 8 of 1 Timothy 2, he doesn't say anything to men about modesty. Not that it's never needed, but it wasn't needed. But men not praying was needed. Men not being expressive in worship was needed. Wrath and doubt was needed. But look at verse 9. In like manner also, that the, woman, the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now, I find it fascinating. I don't believe anything in the Bible is there by accident. I find it fascinating that Paul would say, in like manner. Now, you might think, what in the world does prayer and lifting up your hands and wrath and doubt have to do with modesty? What it has to do with is issues. And men face primarily and women face primarily. And Paul plainly says, we got some male issues, we got some female issues, and I do believe that women, older women, according to the Bible, should teach younger women how to live and look and work in their home and interact with their husband and children and in society. But I take great comfort that I'm teaching from the writings of a man to a whole church. So that men can teach women and men the Bible. Praying men, modest women. Uh, so our clothing, ladies and men, but ladies should be with propriety, good judgment, modest versus bad judgment. Talk about moderation in the middle of the road later, maybe not tonight. So we avoid, according to him, crazy, elaborate styles. And back then, maybe this braiding would have been weaving into the hair, jewels and crazy gold or whatever, to just be ostentatious, showy, not really projecting moderation and simplicity. That's what he was speaking of. And he said, not wearing gold or pearls or costly array, speaking of ornamental jewelry, avoiding those things, the wearing of pearls. He taught that because it was needed. And modesty is a big deal. Now, I want to say right now, because I'm going to get very specific tonight, that um, I don't want to offend anybody, but if I do, I recognize that it's a job hazard, being misunderstood and being offensive. Well, my goal 
And I've said this, I can't even say how many times recently, that my, my goal in teaching this and what I preach Sunday is not to just be able to say, boy, I really laid the law down and, you know, if somebody comes and says, good teaching, pastor, thank you, I appreciate that. But really what I want is for you to get it, see it, and embrace it. So I've been reading my Bible through. You find these reformations in Israel that were led by various kings. And in some cases, the king started it or a prophet, and then it, it trickled down into the whole nation till everybody got it. There were other reformations that were led where maybe the king made a cleansing but the people still sacrificed on high places. And, and it didn't get in the hearts of the people of the, of the kingdom of Israel. And that's not my goal, that I can say that I had a revival or that I taught the Word of God. I, that's part of my goal. I told you last week I, haven't, I have to answer to God for my soul and what I teach and preach. But my goal is that you would have your walk with God. And you would embrace what the Bible says for yourself. Modest means to be decent, chaste, pure, especially in outward dress and deportment. First Peter 3 and 1, the King James Version. It's written especially to wives whose husbands were unsaved. If you read 1 Peter 3. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. That even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. If a husband came to God, typically the family came with him. If a wife came to God, very often she came alone. That husband was a primary influencer of the family. So the Apostle Peter is writing to ladies who have come to God, whether their husband is in church or not, but especially if he's not in church, he kind of says, don't go home and re-preach that preacher's sermon to your husband let your godly behavior persuade him and change him. How you live is very powerful. And if you go home and preach to him, you're probably going to drive him away. Verse 2. While they, your husband, they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear or respect. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on a fine apparel. Let it, rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. That's a great verse, right? Women love that verse, ladies. Uh, Whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. I want to digress just a little bit, not really on my subject tonight. But if you think about it, there are, there are a couple of times Abraham made some bad decisions. He told Sarah to tell someone that she was his sister and she sort of was. He was afraid that if he said, she's my wife, that they would kill Abraham and marry Sarah. She's a very beautiful woman, the Bible says. Well, Abraham didn't trust God, but Sarah submitted to him even when Abraham probably wasn't doing the right thing. So if you think your husband doesn't always do the right thing, Abraham, who is the father of us all, made a few mistakes in his life too. But she submitted herself to him. So this passage covers several points about modesty. This modest woman is pure, clean, uh, and she has this sense of, of modesty about her. Now, in the beginning, when God made Adam and Eve, by the way, it was just the two of them and animals, there was nobody to be immodest in front of. So we all have the privacy of our homes and our relationships with spouses that are sacred in the sight of God. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed is undefiled, the Bible says, and you're not to defraud one another. That's another subject. But anyway, 
Adam and Eve are there and they're not ashamed. When sin entered, they were ashamed and they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves and God knew it was inadequate. He clothed them with the skins of animals. Genesis 3.21, He made coats of skins. And I covered this earlier a couple weeks ago talking about gender distinction, okay? So I don't want to go too long on this one point. But God clothed them. And He used more than one animal. And from the other night, you may remember me saying, I don't think they were mice. I can't prove that, but I have a feeling that God gave them clothes of skins that was bigger than a fig leaf. Anybody know how big a fig leaf is? You've seen a fig tree? I mean, they're not like that small, but, you know, they could pass for, pardon me, I'm going to be pretty plain tonight. They, They could pass for a bikini, maybe. But whatever it was that... Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with, God said, that is terrible. No, he didn't, God didn't say that, those exact words. That I know of, but he killed animals, shed innocent blood, the principle of sacrifice and substitution that we see all through the Bible. And he clothed them. He gave them something to wear to cover their shame. That's what clothes do. One rabbi pointed out that everything in the way of culture and civilization was given for man to discover on his own. Nothing in the way of repairing the world and settling it was given to him by the divine. Neither the discovery of fire nor farming nor building houses was revealed to man by God, but it was required for man to discover or invent those things on their own. The one thing that God did for man that he didn't tell man to do for himself is God clothed him. You think about that. That it must have been very important to God that the divine made clothes for men and women so that they would be covered. You may remember the story of the man of Gadara. He's a demonic man that is out of control. He's had devils for a long time. And the Bible says in Luke 8, 27, that he wore no clothes. Now, I'm not trying to form a doctrine about this demon-possessed man, but I'm just going to tell you this little insight that he was naked and demon-possessed because whatever the devil was doing to him was shaming him in multiple ways. But when the devil was cast, the devils were cast out of him, Luke 8.35 says that they found that man. He was out of whom the devils were departed. He was sitting at the feet of Jesus. He was clothed and he was in his right mind. Now if that didn't mean anything, why would we know that? Why wouldn't we just say he had devils and then he didn't have devils? There's something that ungodliness produced in him that forgiveness and restoration to God provided for him. Now, in a practical sense, I love this phrase that I heard many years ago that made sense to me, that modest apparel draws attention to your countenance, to your face. And especially on women, this is very important. That if your clothing, if the way you dress yourself, draws attention to other parts of your body that makes you sexually appealing to men or some women then that would be immodest apparel. If you will remember, David, a man after God's own heart, was drawn to Bathsheba because he saw her unclothed. He was in a place of privilege and in a position to see a woman bathing on the roof and her nakedness attracted David. She was a beautiful woman, the Bible says. That immodestly dressed woman, no clothes at all, fueled ungodly imaginations in Him. Clothes are often a revelation of who we are, the style we wear and the, what we wear and whether it is modest or not. And Most of us get to pick our clothes, maybe not all the children here. That doesn't mean you get to pick everything you want. You may not be able to afford what you would really like to wear. And you like to wear something nicer perhaps, But in the style and what it covers or what it leaves uncovered is a choice. It's a choice that we make. It often reveals either the effect of style and fashion 
on us as opposed to the impact of the Bible on us. And it often reveals sometimes our motives, what we're trying to say to other people. Are we trying to attract or impress or appeal to God who says that He sees the hidden man of the heart and a modest person, modest woman, is in the sight of God of great price. And I'll throw this in here from 1 Peter 3, that the Apostle Peter said you need to have the incorruptible trait of a meek and quiet spirit. And I've said this before, and you know, you teach these things repetitively, and I love the Apostle Peter said, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to stir you up in remembrance. I'm going to say some things over again that I've said before, because you've got to be reminded of it, and I need it too. So I'm not senile, I'm repetitive on purpose, and when I get senile, I get to repeat it, and don't remember that I repeated it. The hidden man of the heart. You know, beauty is a very competitive business. And as you age, things change. And if your claim to fame is your appearance, your sexuality, your body, eventually, it may take a little longer for some people than others, that ain't working for you anymore. That's not working for you anymore. And if a wife is trying to keep her husband interested in her only by that, the competition is way too fierce. Way too fierce. It's already too fierce. I don't care how old you are. Or how good looking you are. Or how whatever. If you're a 10 in every way, there's a lot of competition if you're 25 or 45 or 65. You better have something going for you more and your appearance to have that husband stay in love with you. And it works the other way too for men. That's what the Apostle Peter was saying. That husband is going to see the way you live. He's going to be drawn to God through you. God invented clothing, and they can be beautiful. Clothing can be beautiful. It can be, according to the Bible, Proverbs 31, 22. It can be enticing, according to Proverbs 17.10, the attire of a harlot. God's design for clothing, we covered this thoroughly, is to show gender distinction, men from women, and I dealt with that last week in pretty good detail. Clothing should help us avoid sinful, manipulative behavior that leads to negative consequences, and there's a raft of scriptures that would tell us about that, and we should dress in a way It shows our separation from the world, i.e. that we are modest. Our clothing should show our humility and not draw attention to ourselves so much. Our internal holiness should come out. Jesus said they would see our good works, our godly behavior, and glorify our Father which is in heaven. The Bible even said that we should put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. I've never really thought about this till right this moment. What about this? What about this? Write this down for me. You reach in your closet and you're going to put something on. And the Bible said to put you on the Lord Jesus Christ. What if that, is that Jesus or the devil? Is that Jesus or Jezebel? Is that Jesus? Is that put on Jesus? Would, is that something that he approves of? Or is he not comfortable? Your Lord Jesus Christ I'm talking about. Now, primarily ladies, but men increasingly have fallen into this trap of immodest apparel. But because Paul spends a little more time trying to help ladies, I'm doing that too, okay? And I think I have a biblical precedent, because Paul did. I'm just following his example. And when you wear clothing that accentuates, shows off your body, what, what message What message is that telegraphing to other people? You're dressing for your husband, your father, for other men. And I mean, let's, you know, we could get very real right here and say every commercial that is visual, not every commercial, but any magazine and almost every magazine that is selling something using a woman as the model for that product 
uses, it's probably not often, I'm not saying there's no exceptions, a homely woman, an unattractive woman. You could just go ahead and fill in a few more blanks there that I'll just spare you. It's a pretty woman, a woman who is is telegraphing a sexual message to sell a car, a cigarette, a hamburger, a website domain name, or whatever. It doesn't matter. What they want your attention. And I've often wondered, because I'm a man, right? Like, why did why are women, why don't they do that with women, except maybe women are not lusting after that one women, but they admire what she is and wishes she was and whatever, it seems to work for Madison Avenue. Years ago, an independent Baptist pastor's wife said, why does a woman insist on wearing short skirts, tight knits, low necklines, and seem oblivious to the stress she puts on others? Can it be that she subconsciously invites a proposition to sin? Does she like the gleam of desire she sees in a man's eyes? It's very important. Do we recognize that how we look is a very powerful witness to the world that we belong to God, that we, that we dress, we present ourselves in modest apparel. Now, I, I just want to get even a little more particular. You may notice our platform, right? Notice the way we ask our, our ladies to dress and men to dress on our platform when the choir sings or the worship team and so we have a written uh, platform guidelines, church time standards. But one of the things that I'm very strong on is that on our platform, we forbid mini skirts, short shorts, and bikinis. Has anybody noticed that? We do. We, we just are against that. I know that's shocking that we are that strict, that we forbid... And that would really be bad on men, wouldn't it? My goodness. I don't even want to try to visualize how gross that would be. Now, obviously I'm making a point. And my point is, you may say, now pastor, if that was your standard, if you allowed that on that platform, I mean, no church should allow that on their platform. And I would say, you're right. And I'd also say that here at our church and in the 4,500 United Pentecostal churches that a very high percentage of them, and there are exceptions, unfortunately, we commonly teach a, a stricter standard than it's okay to wear whatever you want, whenever and wherever. So what we teach is biblical principles of holiness and modesty applied to dress, to behavior, I mean, you can be modestly dressed in your body language, your words, your can be seductive too. I'm not I'm trying to be in an extreme here because I'll never make my poster child the person who's holy on the outside and corrupt on the inside. That's wrong too. And I think everybody believes that. Amen. So we have a conservative dress standard among oneness Pentecostal people, and we don't shrink back from it, and we do have church time standards, and I'll just read you kind of the preface of what we say. The people who minister on our platform in leadership or in public service roles are the most visible representatives of our church and should mirror the spirit and standards we teach. Ministry is not the performance of an hour. It is the outflow of a life. It's who you are, not just what you do while you're in front of people that really matters to God. Our character and devotion to God must be the foundation of what we project publicly. So we talk, you know, men to men have clothing and grooming and ladies' clothing, you know, standards and grooming of a particular way. We want to project biblical holiness to our church, to our children, to the young people growing up here, to people who are coming looking for a church that has not lost its mind about what it means to be like Jesus and Christian in our church. Now, on our, on our platform, 
You know, our ladies wear their sleeves below their elbow. I've said this for like, so just in case you think this is new, for 15, 17 years, you should aim for your elbow, and it's not because somebody will lust after this piece of skin right here versus this piece of skin right here. But I'm interested in, you know, where that line stops because closer to your elbow versus closer to your shoulder is a lot of difference. And when you are wear sleeveless or cap sleeves, you may reveal a lot more than just the top portion of your arm. So we're aiming to be modest and not just your arm or your from your knee to your ankle, but of everything that ends up showing uh, in one way or another. I'm trying to be very discreet here. I'm trying to behave. If you, your necklines and sheer material, you know, if your neckline is low and it's revealing, and there's like a, there's a little V-bone right here that most of us have, and that's a good place. You may want to just touch that right now, and that's a good, that's a good little marker. to. So that would be a good place to stop how low men that my shirt is unbuttoned or women that your blouse would come. And if it is very loose and you are not standing upright all the time, that could also become immodest as well. So plunging necklines and loose blouses that fall open. Again, I'm being very practical here tonight. I have a lot of scripture to stand behind what I'm saying. But you know, I've been around too long and a pastor too long for the people that just say, you know, just read the scripture and let everybody go home and figure that out. That's what's going to happen anyway. You're going to go home and make your own decisions. So why not have a little guidance on how to make those decisions how to apply biblical principles in 2017. That's why we say that, and I mentioned this last week, it skirts below your knee, and if it's got a split in it, that it ends below your knee so it doesn't you know, violate or go against what we were trying to do. I grew up, I told you, in the, in the 60s, 70s. I went to high school when mini skirts were in, short, short skirts. So I know everybody thinks, my goodness, this world has never been as bad as it is right now. Ever read about Sodom and Gomorrah in your Bible? That was a long time ago. What goes around comes around culturally. It's a revolving wheel. This is not the most wicked culture there's ever been. It's more pervasive, perhaps. But the stuff that we dealt with when I was a teenager, all of you young men, the things that you may see and you're trying to stay holy and pure, I grew up in that world. I don't have angel's wings. I'm a real live person. I thank God that we've got better sense than to think we're going to have our girls grow up and be a sex object to some boy in her behavior and her dress. I mentioned this last week, whether you wear stockings or leggings. This is a great, for dozens of years, wear your skirts and dresses below your knee regardless because the leggings are not always going to be there, so that's what we do. And we teach our women here, by the way, to wear dresses, teach our men to wear pants and not to get that backwards. I said it last week, men, quit wearing dresses or no dresses on men at Atlanta West. That's not what we teach here. Everybody understands that, but we say pants on women are like, hey, what's the deal with that? Well, it's the same principle, gender distinction. But let me just say this, ladies. And, and if you think, my goodness, why did he say that? Because it needs to be said. Because we have some problems at Atlanta West with practical modesty. If your dress is immodest like tight jeans are, excuse me, if your tight dress is immodest, like tight jeans or spandex is immodest, men or women, but I'm talking to women now, then you're wearing immodest women's apparel just like a lady in spandex pants is wearing immodest men's apparel. So I'm really asking husbands and fathers like open your eyes at home and say, you know what? I mean, think about this. What if Abraham would have just said, look, Sarah, I'm not going to go to bed with your handmaid. 
We're not having a child. I'm not, I'm not producing an Ishmael. He didn't know that then. Who's going to create trouble for thousands of years. You know, Sarah, that's a really creative idea, but that's not, that's not God's plan. And if Adam would have spoken up to Eve and said, no, we're not, I'm not eating that, it would be a different world. And if Abraham would have manned up and said, no, Sarah, it would be a different world. I'm not doing that. And there's a lot of silent men who need to speak up. There have been times when it needed to be me. It's not always easy. We want to be light that God wants us to lead. I would that men everywhere pray. If we had a lot more praying men, we'd have probably more modest women. Now, I, I know a couple things and. I'll wrap up here in just a minute. Worship team, why don't you come give us hope? Distract us a little bit. Like I know some things about being specific. First of all, you get blamed for being a legalist. If you study legalism... If you've never read the books of Brother David Bernard, David K. Bernard, General Superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church, Holiness, Holiness, A Second Look. I bought some books of his that I thought I had. I have the hard copy. bought them on Kindle today just so I would make sure they're in my Kindle library. A lot more information than what I have time to give you in a Bible study. But there's a lot of things I know. First of all, instruction without understanding brings resistance. I've learned that, I've learned this, I don't always remember this, that the ladies tend to be a little more sensitive. And a word may feel like a punch. And I'm not trying to beat anybody up today. I've also learned that a lot of women have got a wounded spirit. They have a hard time hearing anything from anyone. Because instead of seeing it as constructive, they see it as destructive. That's the last thing I want to do. And I also know that there's a lot of folks in here that need to make some changes, some improvements. And so standing here, I know you. I'm looking at you and we talk personally and I've been here 21 years. So I'm not the man in the moon. I didn't just show up tonight to talk about something from out of nowhere. I am doing my best to watch for your soul. But I know anything imposed on us can feel like an intrusion into our personal rights. What right does he have to tell me what to do? Really, I'm just telling you what the Bible says and what I believe you should do. And as I said last week, it won't affect you being able to worship here and love God as long as you don't cause trouble. You can come here till Jesus comes. And if you go up with the rest of us and Never did what I taught or the Bible says. The Bible says, that'd be tough, right? I see you in heaven and say, great to see you in heaven. I'm glad you didn't go somewhere else. Why would I want anybody to be lost? So people can kind of resist that, you know. And then I also know that people tend to push the limits just like kids do with the authority of their parents. It's in our nature. And I know that wherever you draw a line, parents, figure out what curfew you want to set with your teenagers. Whatever that time is, you know you're going to get a little pushback. You can draw, I don't believe in arbitrarily drawing lines as a pastor. But I'm just going to tell you, 39 years of ministry and I grew up in church. Wherever you draw that line, somebody's going to cross that line. Somebody's going to challenge that line. And I told you, holiness is a perfect principle. But the application of holiness is just a little messy. And to prove beyond any shadow of doubt in a court of law that a dress should be this long or a sleeve should be that long, I might lose that case in court. But aiming 
to please Jesus Christ, the judge of all the earth. I feel pretty good about that. Because that means a whole lot more to me than what the court of public opinion means. Could you stand right now? I've got a good bit more in this particular lesson, but I think I'll stop right there. If you have a few moments to join me in the altar and pray before we go, certainly welcome to do that. Some of you have very early mornings if you need to go, I understand. To our online audience, thank you for being with us tonight. Why don't you gather with me and let's just spend a few moments consecrating ourselves to the Lord. Amen.